Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 34 this morning. Read with me, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, meaning Jesus, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, No one dared to ask him any further questions. Join with me for a moment of prayer. Lord God, now we come to your word. We ask that you would open hearts and open eyes. That we would hear from you. We believe that this word, this word is the very inspired word of God. Given to us for our good, for our growth, for salvation, and to lead us to maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our title this morning is Jesus in the Most Important Commandment of All, Part 2. We began this series and we read these same exact verses about four weeks ago. Uh, Alex spent two weeks finishing the book of Jude, and then last week, as you know, If you were able to join us, we were with a sister church of ours here in the city, Nordstown, where we celebrated together. But we're now picking back up in this important passage. For those of you who are guests, uh, we are going through the book of Mark systematically here. We uh, are, are, are each week learning more and more of the story of Jesus. And as we approach this text, we come to it with an entire context of all that has been taking place. And so, before we begin, uh, let me just begin with this. Has anyone ever seen or used Cliff Notes? For our American friends, I don't know if they have these in other countries, uh, or whether other countries have discovered these, uh, but Cliff Notes are these Helpful book summaries. I see a lot of, like, I haven't seen you this happy shaking your head that I think the whole time I've been preaching. Uh, of, of all the things that I have set up here, this seems like the one thing that is connected is Cliff Notes. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar, Cliff Notes are uh, a book summary in just a very few short pages. It tells you the main plot, it tells you the main characters, the big themes. And when we come to life, you know, so we may have read, uh, I remember having to read Hamlet, uh, not so easy reading, and so you did the assignment. By the way, you were never allowed to consult these unless you actually did the work. That was one thing your teachers threatened you with. Do not do the cliff notes. You need to read the book, and they would specifically try to ask questions that were not covered in the cliff notes so they can tell whether you studied. But the reason I bring cliff notes up is this. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was cliff notes to life? Wouldn't it be easy? I don't know you're weak, but I know at times my daily week is assaulted by a thousand commitments and a thousand things and a thousand tasks that all conspire to overwhelm me. There's weeks where it goes well, there's weeks where you feel like, not only am I, I'm, I'm, I'm just treading water, like I, I am making some serious progress, and there's weeks where you are drowning. Wouldn't it be nice if there was cliff notes to life where you can just find the easy summary to say, 
What is life really about? All that these things that are on my plate, all of these things that I think are important, all of these things that are weighing and heavily on me that feel like burdens, and they're good things. Wouldn't it be nice if you were able to just cut through and say, but what is the most important? In this passage, Jesus gives us the Bible's cliff notes. And the reason we have these cliff notes, Jesus is going to take the Old Testament and he's going to boil it down to two things. And so, as you come this morning, one thing that you need to recognize and know as you leave, you will have from the world's greatest teacher, the highest authority on God himself. What's the summary? When it all comes down to the simplicity and the clarity so that I can prioritize my life, what is the center? Jesus gives us those answers here this morning. So let me bring you up to speed if you were not here in the past. When we come to Jesus, Jesus' enemies and his opponents had come together and they were trying to trap Jesus in his words. This is what's been taking place in the passages before this. And they were asking him very difficult questions. And the hope was that Jesus would say something or he would teach something that they could use against him to do away with him. In the midst of these questions that Jesus is receiving, actually we get one honest question. It's a scribe. A scribe, his, his profession was to, to know the law, to study the law, to make commentary on the law, and uh, to, to be, in a sense, an authority in this culture. And we have a scribe who asked Jesus this question, which was, which is the most important of all? Jesus, can you just tell us one commandment? Could you boil it down? Could you summarize? Could you give us the cliff notes? And Jesus answers him definitively, not vaguely, not in gray areas, and say, well, that's a tough one. Jesus answers definitively. And because Jesus answers definitively, you can walk away this morning with a definitive answer, with absolute clarity to life's most important questions. And it will show you what are the things that I should be living for. How do I prioritize my life? When I'm overwhelmed, how do I just come back to home base and say, it's really just about this? Well, our passage this morning does that for us. So previously, we already looked at Jesus' first answer, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And where we're going to focus, particularly on today, is the second part of Jesus' answer. There's going to be meat on the bone. And if you're thinking, what does that mean? What it means is, I can't go into every aspect of this passage this morning. I want to focus in on one very specific thing, and that is to look at Jesus' answer to this man about loving our neighbor as ourselves. We're going to take a look at what that means. And it means there's going to be parts of this passage that we don't fully go into. And that's where I say, this is your divine homework. If you have an interest, keep on plugging away, folks. I'll be glad to, uh, to give you more resources to study. But here's our outline for this morning. We're going to look at three things in regard to unpacking Jesus' uh, clear answer, his command to love our neighbors as ourselves. The outline is this. In verse 31, we see two for the price of one. We're going to talk about that, unpack it. Then we're going to take a look at why are these two commandments linked. And then we're going to take a look at what does it look like to love my neighbor as myself. Okay? So let's begin in verse 31. And I want to draw your attention, this two for the price of one that the scribe asks Jesus to try to summarize. He said, can you give us what is the most important command? Singular. He's asking Jesus. He's recognizing that Jesus and uh, his teaching is profound. He recognizes that nobody has given answers like Jesus. Nobody has a command of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures like Jesus. And so he takes an opportunity and he says, what is the most important command? 
And Jesus gives him two for the price of one. Have you guys ever been to the grocery store? What happens when you see two for the price of one? You're like, man, I'm on it. It's not very often. You, you go, and for the price of one, you get two. And I simply titled that because I want it to stick in your brain that this man asked for one command, but Jesus actually gives two. Now, Jesus is uh, the authority on the Scriptures. But it's very interesting that Jesus would give two instead of just one. Now, when we studied previously, we took a look that Jesus didn't make his answer up, that Jesus actually got his answer from the Old Testament, the Old Testament Scriptures, from the Torah. And the first answer that Jesus gave... Uh, comes from Deuteronomy 6, 5. This is where we're told that we are to love God with all of our, our heart, mind, strength, and soul. That Jesus was directly quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. But you see in this text, especially in, in verse 31, Jesus says specifically this. He says, the second is this. So he doesn't just give one command. He says... The most important is, Deuteronomy 6.5, he quotes it, and then he adds, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the first thing I want you to see, it's very obvious, it's right in front of you, but just so that we don't overlook this, man asks for one, Jesus gives two. Where did the second command come from? And just so you know, so if I were to open my Bible and we were to look up Deuteronomy, so Deuteronomy is, is here, Right? And you think, oh, the second command is that Jesus could give must just be right in the text right next to it. So Jesus gives one, and then he just gives the command right after it. He doesn't. The, the second command that Jesus gives is actually from Leviticus. And so it's a completely other book. So Jesus is synthesizing something here. So it wasn't just as easy as like, okay, here's where you find it in the Old Testament. Here's point one, here's point two. Jesus is actually now, and by the way, because you know this passage so well, in your brain, they're already linked. It's really hard for us to imagine ourselves as Jesus' original audience. Even if you, you uh, are not a regular churchgoer, you probably already know that there's two inseparable things. Love God, love people. You might even see a shirt like that, right? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from Jesus, but it actually wasn't that simple. The second passage is Leviticus 19.18. Let me just point it out and have you take a look. It says in the context of many other very specific laws about what it looks like to be pure, and in the sacrificial system it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. And then here is the tag. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then it gives a reason. I am the Lord. Now, I'm going to say Leviticus is probably not most of the devotional material most of us go through. And so for Jesus to pull out this particular command shows you his, his grasp and it also shows you that Jesus saw something about this because it wasn't immediately obvious. It wasn't the next passage in Deuteronomy. It was a completely different book and it was a completely different context. And so Jesus combines Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18 if you're taking notes. If you just want to say them, love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, first point, finished. You saw two for one. Everybody got it? Two for one. The second thing we want to look at is, well, why are these linked? Why was it so obvious to Jesus that these were linked? And so now we want to take some time to unpack this specific question and answer this. Why were they linked? So let's go to Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you have your phone, punch it in there. The reason I want you to, take a, uh, to look at it is that it's not going to be in the back here. We're going to be looking at these verses, but we have a different slide. Turn to Exodus 20. This is verse two, 1 to 17. And you probably should come across a very familiar passage. Somebody tell me, what are we looking at? Ten Commandments. 
Right, and by the way, uh, this is not the actual name of this, these, uh, we call them the Ten Commandments. If we were to probably put a better word on it, it's, it's God's ten words to his people. Maybe the best way to look at this is God's ten good rules for life. It, it really, it would be a, a way to understand the Ten Commandments. God's ten good rules for living. And I want to unpack Exodus 20 verses 1 to 17. Because in this passage is where we begin to see where Jesus gets his theology that would help us understand why is it that when asked to summarize in one command, what, what, uh, does, what is the most important commandment? Another way of asking it is, it is what is most important to God? And Jesus says, love God, love people. Where does Jesus get that theology? Well, he actually gets it from the Ten Commandments. Let's take a look, and I want to ask uh, Des to bring up the next slide for us. We're not going to read through the Ten, Command- or the Ten Commandments, but I want you to visually have them in front of you. And I want us to take a look. Because our expectation might be, if God were to be revealing the ten rules that we should live by, and this is what's happening, so if you don't know the context, when we're looking at the book of Exodus, the very beginning of, uh, or not the very, at, at the front end of our scriptures, the story of Exodus is a story of how God saves his people from slavery in Egypt, how he calls them out into a relationship with him, how he covenants with them, and then so that his people might know who he is and how to live in relationship with him, God reveals these ten good rules for life. Here is how you live in relationship with me. Now the expectation might be that all of the rules would be about God. And this is where the Ten Commandments, or God's ten good rules, takes a very interesting turn. Because they're not. We see something very surprising. So look at our screen here. In the Ten Commandments... You probably know most of these, but let's take a look. We find two different dimensions. There's a vertical dimension, there's a horizontal dimension. The vertical dimension of the Ten Commandments talks about these things. It says, do not worship other gods. There is no other god. There's one true god. The second commandment says, do not make idols or images. Don't form things with your hands. In fact, the kids are studying about an image today. It's about the time where when God's people were doubting and losing faith and needed something to be able to see, they made a golden calf. Basically, they collected all the gold and, uh, or, or asked people to give offerings. They took that gold and they formed a calf, a, 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 uh, a newborn cow. And they worshipped it. Seems crazy. But our, in our doubts... And you guys know this. How many times in your daily life when you are needing answers about the future, is God's word not enough? Is that we, we long for something more significant, something that we can understand, something that we can handle, something we can touch. And so God tells them, don't make idols to worship me. The third thing God says is, don't misuse my name. Treat my name as holy. My name is not to be profaned. Use it in reverence of me. Honor me. Don't use my name as a curse word. Don't use my name as an average expression. And the last, next one was to keep the Sabbath. Basically, take one day to rest from your normal work so that you can enjoy me. Those four rules are all what we call vertical This is how God is telling, uh, revealing to his people, here is how you can be in relationship with me. What happens next is quite unexpected because we would think of more rules about how we interact with God. But the next dimension of the Ten Commandments is what we call horizontal. So we have four commandments on how we relate to God. And then we see the horizontal dimension. And in the horizontal dimension, we see how people are to relate to one another. Children are to honor 
and respect their parents. We are not to take the life of another. God created life. Life is sacred. We are not to murder. We're not to be unfaithful to our spouse. We're not to steal. We're not to lie or give false testimony. False testimony uh, is specifically when you're called to court or called to give an official witness that we would not speak the truth. And lastly, we're not to jealously desire what others have. And so we see this horizontal dimension. And so God says it's not only important of how you live out your relationship with me, God gives four rules about relationship with him. God gives six rules about relationship with others. But all of these are under what it looks like to have a relationship with God. That's a very interesting connection. We, I've said it already, but the vertical dimension is expressing how do we love God. The horizontal dimension of the Ten Commandments, or God's ten good rules for life, talk about how we interact with one another, whether it's parents, whether it's with a stranger, whether it's with uh, somebody that we know uh, intimately, whether it's with your spouse. God gives rules for living. Now, we asked the question when we began this section, why are these two commands linked? So let me very just specifically answer that. From looking at the Ten Commandments, we see that loving God and loving people are inseparable. Inseparable. There, there is a, a link that God has literally written into life that in loving me involves loving others. Inseparable. We might say that Jesus teaches us something that is foundational for our understanding. That love for God cannot be separated from loving people. We might even say that one is a requirement for the other. That we can't love God fully unless we are loving others. And so we see that a genuine love for God is a seed that produces the fruit of a genuine love for people. Do you see how that works? That a genuine love for God is a seed that begins to grow in your life and that when it grows, the fruit that it will bear is that you have a love for others. We might say that the depth of our love for God is seen by the depth of our love for people. And and just think about this for, for a second. Why might that be? Why might it be that our love for God is most fully seen in our love for others? When you think about your love for God, one thing that we can show God is devotion, right? A, 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 that we, we love God by prioritizing Him in our life. In fact, the word we use for spending quiet time is devotions. Daily devotions. And, and that word is, is just expressing the, the, the rock-solid foundational commitment of saying that in wanting to love God, we prioritize Him and put Him in our schedule each and every day where we spend time with Him and enjoy Him. So we can be devoted or or we could be committed or we could prioritize, but you know the things that you can't do for God? Do you know that you can't show compassion for God? you know that you can't show forgiveness to God? Do you know that you can't show mercy to God? We only receive those things from Him. So how are those things? How is God's character? How is a genuine understanding and love for God actually shown? I can't forgive God. I can't show God compassion. I can't meet God's needs. But you know whose needs I can meet? My children, my spouse, my neighbor, my acquaintances, my co-workers. This is why our command to love God is inextricably linked. It cannot be separated from actually loving our neighbor. Loving people, loving neighbors is the context. It is the field where we play, where where the love of God gets played out in our life. Let me point you to two verses in the New Testament that that point this principle out. So in 1 John 4, verses 19 to 21, it says this. We love 
because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, or sister, or child, or co-worker, or neighbor, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, or co-worker, or wife, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. This love for us that that should be seen for all of us who, who are followers of Christ is so characteristic of being a disciple. John 13, 34 to 35 says this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, to the twelve. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How is our love for God most fully seen? In our daily relationships with others? When Jesus speaks to his own disciples, how is Uh, the fact that we have chosen to place our faith in in Christ most fully seen, Jesus says, by your love for one another. Now, just being uh, a, a father in relationship, I know that I often tell my wife and kids, I love them. And we should. It's normal and natural that you would confess your love for God. But you know, so where is that scene? My wife and my children will know that they're loved, not just through my words, they need to hear it, but what will actually show them that they're loved? It is the personal interaction. It is the spending of time. It is the, a, a, a time for coffee that we set aside. It is spending time with my kids, uh, if, if you guys know Salem, the girl never sits still. What does it actually look like to actually meaningful love her and not tell her? You guys know. It is that those words have to move towards some type of action. And there's many, many ways that I can try to love my wife or my spouse. There's many ways that we might try to love together. But one thing I'll tell you, if it's only words, it's meaningless but how powerful when the words match the actions. Just a little side point. This isn't a part, but before I move on, I just want to make a note. There is a priority in the order. Did you notice that when Jesus uh, answers, he says the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And then he has a very clear second place. What second place? Love your neighbor. I just want you to note, we can't go further, but it it would be a shame not to mention this. Loving God comes first. God is the source for loving others. We cannot love others the way that we should without the love of God flowing in us and flowing out of us. You minister from an empty cup. You must, first and foremost, be experiencing God, enjoying God, if you want others to be to be able to be blessed because I've done this and I'm pretty sure that you have too. How many of you ever served? Well, first of all, you had the words. You talked about, hey, uh, what a joy. Thanks, you know, Sam, thanks for serving. Like, eh, it's no problem. But have you ever done it where your your entire time your heart was just angry and frustrated and bitter that you're having to serve in this way? Have you done it? And then you recognize, I can't simply serve. I mean, I can go through the actions. But the only way that they are blessed, I am blessed, and God is glorified is when we prioritize God. And then out of our relationship with God, out of the overflow of the vertical relationship, that it spills over into the horizontal. You know, you know that classic little thing where you have all the wine glasses and then you pour it on top and it gradually moves down? If I had wine glasses and a bottle, I'd set it up for you and we'd show the visual. But here's what I know. Only as you are enjoying God, 
Only as you are taking time to prioritize him, only as you have time to, to truly allow God to pour into you, will you find the joy in pouring into others. Otherwise, you minister from an empty cup. You go through the words, you say the words, and you go through the motions, but it, and if you've been there, and I've been there, that's a pretty dry place to get to service with no love and no joy. It's busyness. And I don't think anybody here wants busyness. Let's keep moving on. So just as a point, side point, we minister out of the overflow of our love for God. I want to take some time as we finish up. What does it look like to love my neighbor? So we started with Jesus gives a two for one. The man asked for one command. Jesus gives two. We asked the question, why were they linked? Well, they're linked because if we go back to, the, to some good sound theology from the Old Testament, we see it in the Ten Commandments. We see it in God's good his ten good rules for living. Jesus simply applies it. So now let's talk about, well, what does it actually look like to love my neighbor as myself? So turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Once again, we're not going to read Luke chapter 10, but I want you to be open to this passage. This is a classic passage. And let's spend some time unpacking what does it look like to love my neighbor as myself. Now, the story in front of you is one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told. You know this story without me ever telling you. If I told you it's a story of the Good Samaritan, then you probably already... If you don't know the story, you know the phrase. Because a Good Samaritan is, is somebody who does what? Stops and helps, Right? Uh, now, so we actually have a positive understanding of the Good Samaritan. How shocked would you be if when Jesus said the word Samaritan, it would have been nails on the chalkboard. Uh, it would have not been received well, is that we have this idea of oh, a Good Samaritan. Let me tell you, original meaning of the story was not happy like that. It was shame that this was the one man who actually stopped and loved his neighbor. Now, I want to take a step back. I told you already that the phrase that Jesus added, we must love our neighbor as ourselves" came from Leviticus 19.18. I need to go back there for just a second. Is that when the Jews thought of loving their neighbor in this passage, they only thought it applied to other fellow Israelites or other fellow Jews. So when I say, love your neighbor, I don't know what that means to you. But we might recognize that my neighbor could be anybody from any culture, from any background, any religion. That's what we might think of. For the Jews in Jesus' day, as Jesus is sharing the story of love God, love your neighbor, they understood Leviticus 19.18 to mean to love other Israelites. That's how they interpreted this passage. And basically, let me, it would be like this. I'm saying, hey guys, I want you to love your neighbor. But really what I meant was, just love people in river of life. I mean, other people, who cares about other people? I'm talking about us. Love us well. Everybody that's here, that's committed, that we all know kind of loves the same thing. Love them. Who cares about the others? Let them take care of themselves. That seems strange, but actually, that's how they understood this passage, is that Jesus is calling them to love their neighbor, meaning they might not know every Israelite by name. They might only pass them on the street. They might be from a different tribe. But they, as a group of, of God followers, were to love each other. One of the things that you need to understand about Jesus, it's not in this passage, but it's foundational. Just like I took you to a foundational passage uh, in Exodus about the Ten Commandments, I need to take you to this foundational passage for Jesus in the Good Samaritan. Otherwise, you will never understand why we should love our neighbor. That's Exodus. That's the Ten Commandments. And what it looks like. Jesus takes that understanding of who neighbor is and he radically changes and redefines who a neighbor is. He basically takes their definition, he smashes it with a hammer, pieces come down, and he gives them and says, this is who your neighbor is. How does he do that? He does it with a story. 
not with a hammer. One of the amazing things is Jesus, the way he uses a hammer is he simply tells stories. And what happens is, it doesn't break anything physically, it breaks you up here. Those who listen, man, all of their previous assumptions of who they're supposed to love just got shattered. So let me tell you what Jesus is calling them to do. In the story of the Good Samaritan, you need to understand a little context. I'll just read the introduction. It says, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Once again, just like in our story, we have a scribe or a lawyer asking Jesus a question. In fact, he's going to ask him a very similar question. He doesn't ask what the greatest command is. He says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, basically, hey, you've seen the law. You've read it. How do you read it? And the man answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Then he has another question. It's the question I was just talking about. Because he says, who is my neighbor? Here's where the story of the Good Samaritan comes in. Let me unpack it. I want you to be looking at the text, but I'm going to summarize. Story of Good Samaritan is this. There's a Jew. He's going on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. During these times, travel was very dangerous. This is why you typically travel with others. It's why you avoided at all costs traveling at night. The roads were dangerous. There were robbers. There were thieves. Just There were gangs or bands of robbers who made a living uh, violently robbing others of their goods. This man is making a trip, and as he's on his trip, he falls in to a group of thieves who violently beat him, who take from him his valuables, who literally take his clothes, which... Uh, uh, during those times, you might not carry around lots of money, but your clothes, your tunic, what you had was valuable. They rob him, they beat him, they leave him basically half naked to die in a ditch. First person that comes by is a, is a, 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 a priest. Somebody who is religious. Somebody who we would say, now that's somebody who loves God. That's somebody who's actually in charge of offering the sacrifices. Of course that person loves God. And the priest walks by, he sees the man, and he literally goes to the other side of the road and passes by. Next person is a Levite. Once again, the Jews would have said, that's somebody that knows God, that's somebody that loves God, that's somebody who professes to know God, to love God. What does he do? He walks by on the other side of the road and passes. Third person who comes by is a Samaritan. And once again, I told you, when we hear of Good Samaritan, we think positive. The Samaritan would have been the person least likely to stop. Let me tell you who a Samaritan was. Back in the times where, when, when Israel was conquered, Israel was conquered uh, by, by Babylon, uh, and they basically took all of those who were educated or wealthy away. And they, they left those who were the poorest, the least educated, and th- those who would have been considered the, the, the dregs of society, they left them to keep the land. And those people ended up intermarrying with foreigners. And so the Samaritans are a mixed race people. There are people that the Jews despised. And I don't say uh, that as, as if this is good or righteous. I'm telling you, here's what the scriptures say. The Jews despised the Samaritans. Why? They were of a mixed race. And secondly, they were of a mixed faith. Because they began to take the, the, uh, the one worship of the one true God and they began to mix it with other things. And at Jesus' time, you had Samaritans. Our world knows this issue over and over and over again. I can't point you to a country where we don't have racism. I can't point you to a, a, a single uh, period of history where in any single country we didn't have this type of mixed race conflict. Where one race believes they're better than another. It's happening here, but with the Samaritan, this Samaritan would have been hated by the Jews. 
More importantly, he would have been the person least likely to stop. Because why would you stop for somebody who you know, literally, it's oil and water. They don't mix. So this is the man who stops. Now let me tell you what he does. So the priest goes by. The Levite goes by. Those who would say they love God. And here's the Samaritan. The one who had the least responsibility. The Samaritan walks by and we're told in this passage that he had compassion. That his heart was moved. And here's what he does. I don't know about you, but if there's one thing my sinful little heart wraps its talons around and doesn't want to change is my schedule. I set my schedule. I have, as, I have everything I want to get done in the day. I, my little tasks are sacred. I have my little to-do-ist app and I am marking those babies off. And I have, have little awards for achieving goals that come up and like, you achieved seven goals today. I'm like, yes! But the first, yeah, a little about me. The the first thing this man does is he stops his own plan. He stops his own agenda. I promise you he wasn't just wandering on that road. I promise you he was going from point A to point B with a very specific reason. And he stops his own schedule. And he sees this man and he gets down on his knees and he basically takes out his first aid kit. He takes out claws, he takes out oil, and he gets down, and you've got to imagine, a man who's been beaten and left for dead is dirty, he's bloody, he's probably half conscious, and he gets down and he starts binding his wounds. There is no way that you accomplish this job without getting his blood, without, with, without handling him, right? This is, once again, a Jew and a Samaritan. They don't even touch each other. And he's on his hands and knees and he's taking care of this man and he picks him up and he puts him on his own animal. If there's another thing that I don't like uh, in my, for my own sinful little heart is when my job is made harder or more uncomfortable by having to take somebody else's load. Can you imagine this man puts him on his own horse and then he begins to travel to town. He's now walking. He rode the animal in. Now he is walking alongside probably holding this guy on the horse or the donkey or whatever it is. Or I would say it's not probably horse. I'm going to say donkey or camel. He's holding this man on. He goes. They get a hotel or an inn, right? Hotel didn't exist. He pays the man's bills. You know what he does? He plays nurse all night. He takes care of that man. And the next morning, he knows he has to get up and go because there's people probably wondering, how is he? Is he okay? We haven't heard from him. Maybe people will think, his own family would think, maybe he got robbed. Maybe he's not okay. So he leaves the man in the inn. He pays the bill. And then he tells the innkeeper, when I get back, I will pay you whatever this man owes for however long he has to stay. And then Jesus ends the parable. In verses 36 and 37, let me tell you how it ends. Here's an exact quote. Jesus tells this story of the Good Samaritan and then says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Notice the very specific phrase. I told you, let's take a look at what does it mean to be a neighbor. What does this mean to love your neighbor? Jesus now asks the question, what, uh, Who proved to be a neighbor? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? Not able to even put the word Samaritan in their mouth. You know what they said? They said, the one who showed mercy. Can you, can you imagine such prejudice that you won't even say the Samaritan? They simply say, the one who showed mercy. And here's Jesus' answer, and this is why it's applicable. This is why I wanted you to tell, to tell this story. Because Jesus says, go and do likewise. What does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? Three words. To show mercy. To show mercy. What does mercy look like? Well, it looks like having compassion. It looks like getting on your hands and knees and binding wounds. It looks like giving up the comfort of riding your own animal, putting somebody else on there and being inconvenienced. It looks like paying out of your own pocket for somebody else's needs. It looks like after paying out of your own pocket, you pay even more so that you can make sure this guy's bill is paid for. 
It looks like a willingness to serve others when it's a great cost to ourselves. And I think this is where we all struggle. It's easy to serve others with a heart of joy when it's something that we want to do. Have, have you all participated in some kind of like volunteer service? where uh, We had something here where we packed boxes for the Ukraine, right? Here's what it cost us. We, we each bought some, some uh, pastas. We bought some things, which honestly, out of our Western pockets, was not a real sacrifice. We took the time to go and buy. We brought it here. We brought boxes. So we did work. We, we stayed around here for about an hour and a half, and we packed boxes. And it was... A joy, was it not? There was, there was so much joy in serving. That's a little bit easier for us. But what happens when we are asked to serve or love neighbor at a great cost to ourselves? Because what Jesus clearly said is, the second command is that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we look at the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, you see what the Good Samaritan did? You see what this Samaritan did? You go and do likewise. That's a call to love others in the same way that God has loved us. And let me tell you, there is no way we can manufacture that kind of love for people without first experiencing God's love for us. When we experience God's forgiveness, when we experience God's mercy, and it's extravagant, this is the only way that we understand what it means to love and it's the, only, it's, it's the only source, it's the only fuel to be able to love others like the Good Samaritan. Let me just tell you, I, don't, I can be honest, I have never loved somebody like this Good Samaritan. I have never been willing in my own life to love. I, I, I have loved, and I have loved sacrificially. I'm going to tell you right now, I have never loved somebody to this extent. But what a high and holy calling that God would say, if you really want to love me, it looks like loving people like this. Now, I don't think that's every day. I don't think that's every month. But what I can say is, how beautiful would it be if our hearts were ready to be inconvenienced and to be able to love somebody? Can you imagine the, life kind of, the life-changing story that person had? Can you imagine how the man who was laying in, in, in the side of the road, ready to die. Can you imagine the feelings of gratitude? Can you imagine the feelings of, of, uh, of joy, of thankfulness that would be on this man's heart? Love others in the same way that God has loved us all. I point you to a quote by a man by the name of Ajith Fernando. He, he ministers in Sri Lanka. And he says this, You will suffer if you are committed to people. Loving others is not easy. You will suffer if you're committed to people. Kevin DeYoung Another author, a Christian author, a Christian pastor says this, Effective love is rarely efficient. People take time. Relationships are messy. If we love others, how can we not be busy and burdened at least some of the time? I, once again, be honest, one of my biggest complaints is that when I have to serve people, it makes me busy and it takes time out of my schedule. That's my hardened, sinful heart. That's what frustrates me. Is it, took, it cost more money. It took more time. It made my car dirtier. Uh, it, was more, it was less efficient than my, my budgeting of funds. But effective love is rarely efficient. People take time. Relationships are messy. I won't go into any depth or detail with this, but if you, uh, we'll just move to show our River of Life covenant. This morning, actually, we went through uh, a, a celebration of two people coming into membership. If you don't know anything about River of Life, one of the things when we took a look at our church covenant is our covenant is specifically written and designed to help you do the two things we just looked at. 
If you notice, our covenant is at the bottom here. It's to love God, love family, love church, love neighbor. Our entire church covenant is written with the specific and express goal of helping you love God and love people. When we come into membership, that is what we are aimed at. If you have not realized that, even if you remember, no, everything that we do in this church is to help you love God and love your neighbor. Let me close with two ways to respond to God's word this morning. The first is this. Ask God to help you love generously and sacrificially. To love your neighbor the way that God is calling us to is impossible without asking God for his help. You need God's help to give you a heart that generously and sacrificially wants to love others. The ability to go the extra mile, the ability to serve, the ability to have eyes that see, to bless, to help, to love someone for no other reason that God has been good and faithful and merciful and forgiving to you. And the second is this. I say this to myself. I pray that it's true. The second way to respond if you truly want to love your neighbor is to make a commitment to prioritize people over tasks. Whenever God answers this prayer that you have just prayed to love others sacrificially, to, love, to prioritize people over tasks, when God answers the prayer and brings people your way. I promise you, because God desires to use you to be a blessing and to show others his goodness, if you begin to ask God to help you love others generously and sacrificially, God will begin to open the doors and open your eyes to see needs. And by God's grace, would you prioritize people in that moment as opposed to keeping your schedule and your tasks, as opposed to keeping all of your family life and everything's perfectly ordered and perfectly structured. Here's what I'll tell you. People will destroy some of the plans that you've made. I'm not telling you to be unwise. I'm not telling you to build your life on the immediacy and the needs of others. But I will say, if you pray this, God will certainly begin to show you opportunities to serve and love others. Let's pray. God, we ask that we would be doers of your word and not just hearers. We have received your word today from the very lips of Jesus. He has answered the question, what is the most important commandment of all? And Jesus responds, love God and love people. God, we pray that every single person in this room would first and foremost know what it means to love you. And for those who don't, do not yet know you and follow you, I pray that you would help them understand What does this look like to know you, to love you? For those of us who call ourselves by your name, I pray that we would love our neighbor well. And as a result, we would experience the joy of serving and you would get glory and others would see your goodness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.